Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the conclusion of the German series. This is the Germans, the conclusion. And in this one, if, if you had been at the live performances when we were allowed to have them, um, a lot of the questions I got afterwards were, were about, well, why Germany? How Germany? You know, what's going on that Germany had such a profound impact on the philosophical history, intellectual history, basically intellectual and cultural history, uh, given its relatively, you know, small size and moderately remote uh, location. And, and, you know, it's an interesting question, and I think uh, it really helps illuminate those elements that are significant for developing sort of these cultural fluorescences that seem to happen every once in a while in history. And Germany certainly represents an era where that was true. Um, and if you go back, it really you really can just start with Martin Luther. He's, he's one of those key figures in the intellectual history of Europe, the history of Europe generally, but certainly the intellectual history of Europe in particular. Um, because before Martin Luther, um, what we think of as Germany today is really only sort of vaguely coordinated linguistically. It was a linguistic cultural community, not a political or religious community. And we tend to now think of those things all overlap in a nation state. Well, that's ahistorical. At the time, there were all these different, you know, free cities and um, uh, papal states and principalities and dukedoms. And there's just every possible kind of political organization with long histories and feudal ties. But the two big power centers are the Holy Roman Empire um, and the Catholic Church. And the overlap of those was so, I mean, it's incredibly complicated and rich and, you know, had evolved over um, uh, centuries to create this just really complex woven fabric of, of cultural continuity and ties. But neither of them were about, I mean, they weren't national. You know, Catholicism, Catholicism was pan-European, of course, um, and uh, the Holy Roman Empire was not quite as widespread, but it was pretty widespread. And how they conflicted and overlapped and all the, that shaped the pre-Reformation uh, world of the German-speaking territories, I think is probably a better way to think of it. And of course, German at this time is not standardized. It's got a wide range of dialects and pronunciations and um, associations. And so it's not, even even the language itself is not really a, a, a single thing yet. Um, and then along comes Luther. And what Martin Luther does, I mean, it's many things, and it's, so it's, I try to tease them apart. Um, one is he breaks the hold of the Catholic Church. And what this does uh, religiously is it says, okay, you have the, Ref the wars of the Reformation, incredibly devastating, bloody, you know, just horrible in every way. Uh, but when you come out the other side, it's like, okay, we don't have a unified religious authority anymore. And so all over Germany, you have this um, rise of different sort of ideas and interpretations. And one of the core insights that Luther had and argued for, wasn't exclusively his, but he made it really count, was that you get to interpret how uh, you read the Bible. And so this had, you know, a couple of ramifications. One is you should be literate. And so there was this huge press for literacy because there's not a priest between you and God now. 
There's just you and God in a direct communication, and you should have access to the Bible. And so one thing you want to do is be literate so that you can read the Bible. And the other thing you need, of course, is you still, not that we got rid of, you know, uh, uh, pastors and such. It's just that their role changed. But now it's not unified. So all these different branches of Lutheranism, Pietism, uh, Hutterites, a little later, um, Calvinism, of course, all these different schools or interpretations underneath the sort of Reformed label spring up. And they each need, uh, and it's basically a competition. It's sort of a free market of religious ideas, free-ish market of religious ideas. And so they all have to have schools where they train up pastors who can preach the correct way to understand and the correct way to help their laity um, understand and read the Bible. So it's this, you know, this interesting dynamic. On one hand, they get rid of the Catholic Church. On the other hand, they want to have some kind of answer. And you know, you have the ideas of Luther, you have the ideas of Calvin, and, and then so many others. And so all of these schools begin to spring up. One uh, grammar school type schools, and also education in the home takes a big leap forward because you need to be literate, because you can now read the Bible and are encouraged to do so. So that's a big break with the Catholic Church. Bibles in Latin, you don't need to know it unless you're going to be sort of in the educated elite and enter the Catholic hierarchy. Um, now the Bible is, of course, famously in, in Luther's German, which we'll talk about. Um, and so here comes all of this emphasis on education, both education at a lower level and education at the level of having needing schools for each of these uh, the theological seminaries for every different sect, and you generally need more than one school for each of the different sects. The Pietists will have a couple of schools of Luther's and Lutheranism, and you know all of, all of this competition of ideas creates this ferment of intellectual activity, generally, generally around theology, but of course, once you get thinking peoples together and they get literate, you know, then, you know, the, the inevitable seems to follow. And so uh, you had both the element of a lot of these schools, uh, by historical standards, by the way, um, uh, many more schools and colleges start to spring up in theological seminaries and had historically been, you know, around for people to uh, uh, participate in. And two, you get a general uh, impetus towards literacy in the population. Of course, the printing press is going now, and so that's a sort of feedback loop where more to read makes better reason to be literate, and you want to be literate so you can read the Bible, and once you can read the Bible where you can read other stuff as well, okay, so now there's more demand for the material coming off the printing press, and so you can just see it's sort of this you know, chicken and egg problem, but once you get it going, you're in business. You know, you've got the printing presses, you've got the literacy, and they just, the feedback is, just takes off. And then with that particular spur in Germany. So right out of the end of the Reformation, you get this obvious, you know, just sort of obvious demand for all kinds of uh, educated pastors, theological arguments rolling. Um, so this is one element of, of, the, of the Reformation that's so important, of course, Luther being one of the key figures there. Another thing with Luther, and this is back to the Bible, is, again, there is not, you know, German, German was not uh, standardized yet, because it basically you can't really standardize a language until you get a printing press, because if you don't have mass literacy, how do people know, right? There's just no way to do it. 
Um, but the printing press and the standardization of a written language is one of the things that begins to standardize how languages are produced. And you get a more coherent uh, linguistic environment, essentially. Never totally coherent, by the way. It's just sort of always evolving. But Luther's Bible, for obviously reason, obvious reasons, you know, he produces this, this German um, Bible, and it becomes sort of... It's hard to even estimate the impact this has on the on the German language. It's it's sort of as if, you know, Shakespeare and uh, and King James were the as if it's, I think maybe if William Shakespeare had written the King James Bible also, that would be sort of Luther's impact, right? Where it's so impactful on the language, how the language was used. When you know, if you're going to be literate in German. Almost uncertain. I mean, I can't even imagine there would be an exception, but there might have been a exception. But basically, what you did is you learned to read Luther's Bible. I mean, this is the text you're going to be educated in. And so, how he wrote sentences, how he constructed his language, all of this begins to create a coherent cultural sort of literacy uh, amongst you know the, the the better educated, but which is a growing population. And so, he adds this spur towards cultural coherence that will, will become important. And, and third, finally, and just the last point, I mean, there's more points, but I think the, the three big ones, um, is he sets an example. Now, uh, historically, if you go back to the classical world, uh, there really weren't a lot of ways to be great. So, you know, if, if you read the Iliad, basically you can be a great fighter, you can kill a lot of people, you can kind of be a great king maybe, but generally the kings they thought should be people who killed a lot of people. Uh, you could be wealthy, but that was always sort of a dubious distinction. Or you could be some sort of aristocrat, which was great, but generally to be an aristocrat meant you should be out there fighting and killing people. So there really wasn't a lot of range of expression, right? So uh, when you get to a figure like uh, Socrates, this is why he's, one of the reasons he's important is in the Western world, he gives an example of another important figure. Another way to be a significant person is to be a thinker. Luther has somewhat the same impact, okay? It's great to be a merchant prince. It's always good to be a count or a duke. Nice to be uh, a cardinal or to be, uh, you know, a pope, of course. That's excellent. You know, maybe the mayor of a free city, that's an important and valuable position. The head of a guild, okay? You know, we've got these sorts of positions you can occupy. But the position of intellectual, yeah, you know, not really there yet. And then along comes this guy, again, Luther, who sets the world on fire, you know, pretty much literally, with his ideas, with his thesis, with his example. And so this is monk scribbling away um, who produces a work of such power that Europe explodes. And that was a thrilling model, right? This is like the, the you know, you, you historically speak, people looked at this and said, you know, education, literacy, this power of mind— and, and ideals can really do something. And so don't underestimate the degree to which just his example uh, uh, imp sort of impelled people to say, I, you know, I want to do something great like Luther. And that seems to involve reading and writing and studying and, uh, and speaking and being involved in these debates. So let's get going. You know, that seems like a great 
sphere where I can reach out and influence the world and, and make an impact. And that's sort of not totally new, but really, you know, he raises the standard. Um, I think, you know, something like uh, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, again, there, his namesake, uh, who, who, you know, he, it's always, you know, being a, a, a pastor in a Southern church, um, had been a position of authority always in, in those communities. I mean, it was an important central uh, figure, but he, Martin Luther King, just sort of took that and made such a huge example of it that people went, wow, you can really have this amazing impact. And it sort of was a spur to people to be involved in the civil rights and to be active. And so Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther, a, a similar, perhaps, actually, actually probably even greater impact in his time of, of people being inspired by that example and saying, hey, you know, I want to go to school or I want my, my sons, you know, unfortunately, almost invariably sons, I want my sons to go and study because they could be the next Martin Luther or they could be a person of significance. And Martin Luther, of course, created this environment where there was all this storm. So now when you get all these new theological seminaries, well, they need directors. And well, to be a director of a theological seminary in a time of intellectual ferment is an important position. And so all of a sudden there is, again, that feedback loop starts up like, oh, you know, yeah, I could, you know, be promoted. My son could be something of importance. And, you know, here we go. It's, it gets a whole milieu going. And so um, you, you take this sort of disorganized linguistically, politically, religiously uh, system, and you throw in a big bunch of intellectual uh, ferment into it, um, generally around theology, but of course this immediately starts to bleed over into every other field. And so just fast forward just a little bit, part of what Luther was working on, like Erasmus in this case, is the Greek and Latin texts, of course, uh, because this is where the Old and New Testament come from. Um, and so the study of languages, the philology thing becomes huge in Germany. I mean, this is this is where Nietzsche comes from. He comes out of the philological line of German intellectual history. And so into all of this intellectual ferment, all of a sudden comes this just wave of the classics, right? By this time, many of the classics are available. They've been being translated. They've been being worked on. And now there's this even greater impulse towards studying them, understanding, and integrating them. And this intellectual tradition is developed in which uh, the argument in Germany becomes that Germany is somehow, I mean, this, it really doesn't make any sense, but the argument is that the Germany is the inheritor of the Greek and Roman classical tradition. And this becomes a very powerful ideal. But, but it, it comes from the fact that, you know, not only were they now getting Luther's Bible, but they're also getting all the classics start to come in sort of in the next generation. Like, oh, we've got the Greek and Latin. Look at all these Greek and Latin texts. Uh, Hebrew, by the way, also became a subject of significant study. So um, now you're getting the classics rolling and the universities are starting to expand. You get, you know, sort of the enlightenment ideals are starting to pick up of science and mathematics. And, you know, the example of Newton is coming across the water. And, you know, all of these forces start to grow and grow inside these German weird states. And so this is the other thing to go back to. So Germany is still not a coherent state. The break up Catholicism, the waning of the power of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, this leaves a moderately uh, more autonomous section of 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible to even go into it. I mean, if you know the United States, think about the United States, you know, what's the difference between Rhode Island and Texas, right? I mean, these are theoretically just two states in the United States. They should be very similar, but, you know, they're just not. I mean, they, but they both speak English and they both have this historical association and so on and so forth. So we think of Rhode Island as a state and Texas as a state, but culturally, politically, I mean, every way you can think about it, scale, geography, economics, it's just, they're wildly different. Um, and, and that's the way Germany was. And, and so you have principalities and again, dukedoms and free cities, but a lot of the money, oh, by the way, you still have Catholic areas too. So that hasn't gone away. But one of the things that happened is a lot of the tax revenue that was going to the uh, Catholic church and then was being spent on war gets freed up and gets redirected into those German states and territories and principalities and whatever. And so there's also this sort of economic aspect of this, which, by the way, was one of the incentives to the Reformation, that sort of gives uh, another spur. So you get this, uh, you know, sort of economic growth uh, following the wars and uh, the, the, the increased trade and these sorts of things start to take off, in part because so much money was being sucked out of the German states that now starts to stay in there and become reinvested and of course all everything that follows. And so you have the first big spur in this crazy environment and now you have these uh, various political entities all arrayed and they're all sharing similar, not identical uh, German language increasing over time. So now if you, you go you know 50, 100 years after Luther, you know now you're looking at it and you go, wow, um, if I'm a small German principality, how do I make my name? How do I establish my interest and authority? And a lot of it was military, a lot of it was trade, but a lot of it was every court, every you know free city, they wanted to have their educational institutions. They wanted to have a theological seminary that was noted for producing the kinds of great scholars that would preach the correct version of whatever your you know local correct version of um, the, the texts were, were the, they had the right theology. And so it had this competitive element to it so that scholars are going from one college to another college or from one university to a seminary to a, another place to study. And there's all of this movement and ferment because there's a competition amongst the leaders to be the sort of most culturally adept or to have the strongest reinforcement of the theological values that you as a leader or as a community think are right, you need to make sure those stay true. And so what happens is you start seeing these generations of scholars come up, often the sons of pastors. So these pastors would go to a little or a lot of theological seminary. Generally, they're not wealthy, certainly not wealthy. They're usually moderately poor to very constrained but education is core to the household, and so they start to raise sons. Again, sorry, it's just sons, and send them off. So you get this generational effect. So now someone who's been in a household where it's literate the whole time and where literacy and study and reflection uh, are, are highly valued, it almost, in an interesting way, it almost reproduces the sort of the, the Jewish tradition of, of having, you know, argument and religious discussion as being sort of core to your experience. And so these families start to produce generations of scholars and, and, and generations of people attending seminaries. And so this, the power of literacy and the example of literacy and the intellectual ferment around that uh, just continues to grow. 
And so while other states are, um, you know, France famously, Spain are having, you know, major wars, big problems with trying to become coherent. And because they were Catholic and remained primarily Catholic, they didn't get the same level of uh, diversity in their institutions. In fact, quite the contrary, they became terrified and they wanted to sort of make sure everyone was sticking with the true faith. And so there tended to be a, a reverse impulse there, which was to narrow the study and, and to, to make sure everybody is towing the line because otherwise, you know, we're going to have another reformation and we can't really afford that because already a lot of territory had been lost. And so Germany is in this sort of um, unique position of having sort of thrown off uh, the Catholic Church and now is experimenting and having all this ferment. And crucially, it has lots and lots of different locations where all kinds of different argumentations and theological discussions and writing are being advanced um, in an incoherent way. So there's no system, but there's a lot of it relative to uh, the rest of Europe where they just don't have that many university or colleges or theological seminaries to attend. Um, and because they're so localized and because there's so many different political boundaries and districts, uh, there's no overarching control. There's no way to step in and say, okay, everybody has to teach this now. It just, there was no political structure that could make that happen. And so you have this sort of perfect environment in, in a way for producing intellectual uh, expression. You have what which turns out to be, you know, sort of historically rare. You have uh, a culture that is pressing literacy, saying, hey, it's good to be literate. You have a culture where there's a lot of, you know, again, his, relative to historical standards, there's a lot of opportunities, if you are bright, if you do become literate, for you to pursue at least a year or two or three years or four years of, of higher education, um, again, generally theological, but then your mathematics in there and science is coming on, um, all within this environment where there's no overarching control. No one can step in and say, okay, we're no longer going to teach that, or that can't be studied, or those books are all going to be destroyed. Now, certain books were burned and destroyed in various places at various times, but again, without a central authority, um, there was no, basically, there was really no mechanism that would allow them to just come in and say, okay, everybody get rid of that book, which was just not true in, in much of the rest of Europe. And so you have this deep foundation of uh, intellect and the example of the power of intellect and the opportunity for intellect to express itself in an increasingly literate society um, that is also increasingly, because of Luther's Bible, becoming a shared language. And that's when you start getting, you know, the just, you know, Lessing, Kant, Hegel, uh, you know, Kierkegaard. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, the, the list is so long. This is it's why it's almost hard to narrow it down. But it is curious that such a relatively small population um, and certainly not extremely wealthy at the time, by the way. These German principalities were generally not necessarily like hugely wealthy. And cumulatively, it wasn't that wealthy. I mean, it wasn't terribly poor either, but you know, it wasn't clearly like rich beyond the means of other European states at the time, and certainly not something like France. 
Um, and and it starts just starts cranking out these geniuses. And you know, Humboldt, this person after per- person comes out, and uh, and and continues. By the way, this this doesn't stop. If you look at the history of physics, if you look at the history of mathematics, if you look at you know the um, um, philosophy, obviously, which we, we've been discussing, it just goes on and on. Um, and you get things like the Frankfurt School and the Vienna Circle. And I think, you know, you can look at something. So Vienna Circle, which goes right up, you know, basically till the uh, till the war, you know, 1930s, um, that even then. So think about that run. You know, if you say 1600-ish, you know, whatever, 1650, when do you want to say Luther's reforms and reformations are starting to take place and be solidified? You know, pick a date, say 1600. Um, and then th- all the way to 1930s, right? So there is, you know, 400-ish, uh, 300 years, 300 years of pretty consistent intellectual um, contribution. Um, at a at a really immensely high level and world influential level, which which is odd because there's not that many German speakers. There weren't then. Um, it's ne- it was never a lingua franca, really. It never it didn't have the power of French or Latin um, or English today or Chinese, uh, where where you know there's just this vast population that speak more or less the same language. Um, but and yet, you know, just the, the power of the example just continues to uh, reach out. And so if you go to, a, again, terminus point, something like the Vienna Circle, if you look at Vienna as a city, I mean, it's just extraordinary how many, you know, Freud, Adler, Jung, I mean, just, you know, basically almost all of psychology, right? All those breakthroughs are coming out of Vienna. You know, you have uh, Karl Popper, you, you know, it's just... Uh, you have the like foundations of sociology. You have um, the incredible economic breakthroughs and thinking on those fronts, all coming from one city. Well, why? Well, again, you have this immensely rich intellectual history combined with, in the case of Vienna, a sort of uh, pan-European ability to draw in genius combined with a respect for literacy and lots of different opportunities to be educated. And you know, hey, presto, bang, crazy stuff happens. Um, and this, that arc is something that we often, I think, overlook because people go, oh, you know, where does, uh, where does something like this continual production of really amazing thinkers come from? And again, we tend to, to think, oh, it must come from wealth. Well, you need a little money. It don't necessarily need a lot. Oh, it must come from freedom of thought. And I think this is important to note. You do need some freedom of thought, but you don't necessarily need like a free press per se. You just need enough of a free press. You just need enough where certain key arguments and and things can be brought out. So this is why Kant was sort of continually in trouble, as was Hegel, by the way. I mean, they were always trying to write in a way that wouldn't get them banned or in trouble. Kant just seemed to not think that anything he wrote was problematic, and somehow that worked for him. Um, Nobody else seemed to be so sure. But, but, you know, because people kept thinking, well, he sort of sounds like he's an atheist. And he's like, no, I'm not. And everyone's like, mm, okay, <laughs> I guess you're not. Uh, but if you had written a, written a pamphlet where you just said, hey, there's no God, you would have been in a lot of trouble. I mean, that, then, then your local ruler would have come down on you and, you know, bad things. But he never did that. Do you have an example of someone like that is more like Voltaire in France, but he had to flee. You know, he was constantly in trouble in France and had to flee, right? But... In Germany, this, there was just enough freedom and just enough opportunity 
uh, that some of these, these minds were allowed to flourish and did receive, again, just enough support. Um, and so I think this is the thing that is interesting, to, at least to me, to reflect on, is what elements really do seem to be crucial. Um, and, and one is this notion of example. So there's an um, a economist, I think he's quite interesting, Mark Blythe, and he said he was speaking to a bunch of investment bankers and you know uh, high-end sort of financial people. And he said, you know, and they you spend lots of money lobbying politicians. And he said to them, like, hey, how many of you would ever hire one of these politicians to run one of your companies? And they just sort of burst out laughing at this very concept. And so we're in this interesting world now where a couple of generations ago, to be a senator or to be a member of the House of Representatives or a mayor or a governor was considered this incredibly prestigious and powerful and wonderful thing that everybody should pursue, or at least a lot of people. But sort of as politics has gotten a bad name, um, it becomes less desirable. And so people are less interested in going in it. At the same time, you know, computer science, which used to be just this land of, you know, geeks and people are interested in stuff with wires, has gained a lot of cultural prestige. And so a lot more people are interested in going into a field because of the cultural prestige, because of the examples. And I think it's easy to overlook how powerful those sorts of motives are. If you see people doing something and you think, wow, that person is really vibrant. They really are being able to be powerful. They're able to grow and express themselves in a way that I think is enticing. Then you go, well, I want to try and do that. If you don't see those examples or you see counterexamples where you go, wow, that person said something about the church and got burned at the stake. I think I'm not going to go into that field of criticizing the church. That seems like a bad idea. I think I'll go over here and be a banker or something. You know, that, that sort of cultural spur. Um, and I think I've mentioned this in one of my Nietzsche lectures, but it, it, he was a um, he became a professor just really early, amazingly early. Just part of the example of how brilliant he was. But it's oh, it's just impossible for us, I think, to grasp when when he became a professor, even though he was young, he had no particular background, son of a pastor, by the way. This is one of those great traditions. Um, um, he goes to the, to to his his city, Basil, I think, and. Um, you know, he's going to dine with the mayor. He's going to be hanging out with the nobility. He's got an on. I mean, to be a professor in Germany for about, you know, two or 300 years was this remarkable, the, the social standing was incredible. Now, you might be poor. Uh, you might not have any real power, but somehow it didn't seem to matter. It's just you were considered to be an important person. And so then people pursued this. You know, princes and kings would call on you for counsel, and, uh, you know, significant uh, personages would want to write you letters and then come to visit you, and uh, they thought you should read your books, even if they had no idea or con concept of what the hell was in them. Um, they just knew you were somebody. I mean, famously, Hegel was going to have a birthday celebration in Berlin, and it upset the king because it looked like, because the king's birthday was about the same time, but it looked like Hegel was going to get more press uh, than the king. Um, and you can think about that. I mean, that's just crazy. How does a philosopher get more press, right, for their birthday than um, a monarch? I mean, this is impossible. This doesn't make any sense to us at all, 
But if you go back to a culture in which these sorts of things are highly valued, uh, now you see that there's this incredible spur that says, hey, I should pursue this. The same kind of rewards that maybe like, uh, you know, a professional athlete might get today where, yeah, you're going to get some money. Um, that's nice. But you also get this level of fame and respect and notoriety that sort of transcends even whatever, you know, uh, it's fine to make money, but it's a different thing uh, than just making money, right? There's this other element to it. And so culturally, there was a big press to say, hey, you want your sons to get educated if you can pull this off. And if you, and if you can, there is a route, not just to a career, although very important, but to, you know, sort of fame and fortune, oddly, not really fortune, but fame and, and sort of power and, and, and recognition and prestige. And if you're not born noble, probably the next best thing was to become a significant academic figure, which is, again, crazy to think of today, but this is, this is how it was. And so those social factors really underpinned this. Um, another element, or not uh, another element that we should be considered here on why the Germans made such a spectacular contribution for so long to the history, world intellectual history, is this tradition of philology. Um, and so once they got rolling, the Germans really got rolling with this. And they, they were huge philologists. So they did uh, remarkable research all over the world um, for, you know, just for no reason except for apparently once you get going, you can't stop. You just, you fall in love with this and you think, yeah, let's learn Arabic. So they were early in the Arabic. Let's do the Persian. They're early in the Persian scholarship tradition. And so... The, the intellectual ferment itself started to bring in these elements that got people excited. You know, you start seeing the importation of, of world classics into German. They're being translated. They're being translated from the original language. You see something similar, by the way, happened in England with the empire, but Germany was really late into the imperial game. They seem to be doing it primarily just for the love of, of, of language. And so it's this, you know, fascinating intellectual concept that brought world classics into German, and then people started, you know, literate populations started going, wow, this is amazing. This is sort of, there, there are these incredible sources out there. And so it had this tendency for some of the intellectuals to expand them beyond both their historical perspectives, but also their world perspective. Again, before they have an empire, they don't have an empire at this point. Um, you know, this is, this is a, not an, an imperial or, or, or monetary co concept. It really did seem to be an intellectual notion of, wow, the world is big and there's lots of valuable stuff out here. You can see this in Schopenhauer life when later he starts to encounter the Buddhist and the Hindu texts and he gets really excited about them because he sees all of the kind of har harmony that it had with his own, many of his own ideas. And so this, this contributes to his a uh, sense of like, wow, I'm on the right track. I'm doing, I'm doing good work here. And so the, the environment became self-reinforcing. <clears throat> and it's, it was so powerful that um, many leading scholars, if it's, if it's 1880, 1890, 1900, and you're a scholar, one of the things you probably considered was like, hey, I need to go to Germany. If you're going to be an art historian or you're going to be a philologist or a doctor or certainly a psychologist a little later when psychology gets going, you're thinking to yourself, you know, my goodness, I probably should go study in Germany for a while because then, then I'll really have the stamp of world-class approval. 
So, you know, figures like William James from the United States are going over there to, to study because that's where you're going to go if you want to be a top-rate figure uh, and have no one can question that you're at your pinnacle. Humboldt, of course, uh, being a key figure here and spreading the, the image of German science as being world-class and second to none. So, um, you know, those sorts of cultural phenomena drove, were, were driven, but they weren't driven just by the ideal. They were driven by this continual outpouring of excellence. Again, you can look at literary figures like Goethe, um, and then, you know, Thomas Mann a little later, you know, Hermann Hesse uh, being more contemporary sorts of, of writers. You know, there's a long run of significant authors there. But before uh, Goethe, and maybe a little bit, I mean, no one in Europe was reading German literature per se. I mean, it was very little explored, very little known. And then, you know, you get Luther starts things rolling again, and then pretty soon you start getting this literary production, and then you get the Lessings and the Schellings and the Herders, and the, you know, and then all of a sudden, wow, the, the, the poetry and the literature and the plays and the intellectual ferment begins to spread in an extraordinary way. And so that peculiar environment, again, pretty unique uh, world, historically speaking, um, had this sort of strange outcome where you had a, a society very interested in literacy, very interested in education, originally first theologically, but then later, lots of prestige associated with it, a lot of prestige associated with being highly literate and being highly educated. And that just kept rolling and being productive. And it was really primarily the two wars, you know, the great catastrophes that destroyed these traditions um, that, that, you know, why study German, right? Almost the language itself almost became a bad idea. Uh, if the Nazis spoke it, it must have been a bad language. But, you know, you can't really blame the German language, obviously, for, uh, for, for these sorts of political institutions. It didn't, the language didn't cause it. Um, and that, you know, but this is sort of what happens. Who, who's going to go study in German for, Germany for, you know, in 1950, 1960, people weren't thinking, oh, I should go off to, to Germany to study. This was not something, you know, they had the problems of, uh, you know, the two separate Germanys, East and West Germany, the economy is just starting to come back after the war, although it did come back remarkably quickly. And so if you grew up in the post-war world uh, and aren't familiar with history, you would never think of Germany as one of the great centers of, of world thinking. But if you look at the history, what you notice all of a sudden is like, wow, there's German thinkers everywhere. And you can even translate that into the diaspora that was caused by World War II in particular, World War I to a certain extent, World War II in particular, where so many German intellectuals fled and brought, you know, the United States was a huge beneficiary of this, but scientists, researchers, uh, writers, thinkers, you know, we talked about Hannah Arendt uh, uh, last time, um, and, and Morgan, Thomas Mann was weirdly living in Palo Alto, which is almost mind-blowing to imagine that. Um, and, and, and much of the world, many countries harvested a great deal of uh, scientific, uh, economic research, uh, uh, intellectual research, philosophical research um, from that tradition. But as a cultural force, it had died. The people were still alive. The people were still contributing. But the environment that had produced that sort of ferment had been destroyed. 
Um, that was, you know, the result of the fascism, and and of course, fascism couldn't stand anything about that regime, uh, and and of course, the horrors of the war. And so then, while we can see the contributions, we tend to forget where they came from and how long the German intellectual tradition and literary tradition was productive. Um, by the way, I haven't even mentioned the musical tradition, so you should just throw that in there because it sort of ran along the same lines. Um, because of the competition of all the different states around Europe, but Vienna, you know, um, Hamburg, well, you know, this, you know, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, you know, Brahms, you just go on and on and on. Um, And so what we look at when we see in world history is, again, one of these strange fluorescences where a culture for 50, 100, 200, 300 years just throws up incredible thinkers, incredible innovation, incredible insight, and then stops. Often it's hard to know why they stopped. In the case of Germany, it's not hard to know at all. It's perfectly clear what happened. A lot of the thinkers got killed, and the culture that had produced them was totally devastated by um, fascism and war, right? So it's, you know, this isn't tricky in any way to figure out. But when you, so when you see these periods, though, I think it really is important to reflect. And so this is why the German thinkers are important. Cumulatively, and we've only touched on a few of the major thinkers. That's the incredible thing. Um, but cumulatively, over centuries, the impact of German thinking and world um, sort of intellectual circles is vast and far outweighs and totally ridiculous that that small of a population, much smaller than France for most of the uh, most of the time we're talking about. I mean, much smaller than France, um, and um, for. It's relatively you know, not many speakers, therefore, of the language. Not a big language family. You know, uh, French is part of the uh, you know Latin family, Romance language. So French, French, Italian, and Spanish are different languages, certainly, but they share a common root. And it's a big language family. The Germanic language family doesn't have that many speakers, and generally, much less you know classical German, which only has existed since. I don't know, you, you pick a date, you tell me, I'm not sure when. I mean, they're still revising the language all the time in Germany, trying to get it right. Um, but, but these concepts, you know, this fluorescence is one of the remarkable uh, moments in world intellectual history. And so I think the combination of the competition, the cultural forces, and the opportunity really combined to uh, aid uh, in the existence of, this, of these amazing riches. And when, and when people reflect on our own culture and our own time, I think it does, you know, it's a good thing to reflect and go, hey, which part of what Germany had that was really useful and productive do we have? Um, is it under threat? What part do we need? You know, how could we apply those lessons? For instance, we, the U.S., one of the things we lead the world in is first-rate educational institutions. We have so many colleges and universities it is spectacular. It's unimaginable. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons we're world leaders in innovation in just about every field is because, good Lord, look at the opportunities we have to achieve the education. Um, you know, but I think culturally, woo, you know, certainly the status of being educated is not nearly what it was and perhaps shouldn't be, but, but certainly isn't what it was during the German time, uh, during the German sort of high water fluorescence culturally. Um, because we were much more emphasis is placed on money. Status is nice, but what really we attach status to is primarily money now. Um, that's certainly an arguable point, but I think there is some merit there. 
And so that is a disincentive uh, for many to do things that don't seem to be financially uh, remunerative. So uh, there's that interesting balance. When does the status become so low and the money becomes so low that people just say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and, you know, and then, and then what happens to an educational system, say, when uh, teachers feel like they, they don't, you know, we have a big problem with teachers in elementaries and high schools, lots of turnover, the feeling of low pay and burnout, et cetera, et cetera. And so if, if you reduce quality there, what happens, right? Those sorts of interesting, you know, feeding, you know, you feed a university from these lower educational institutions. And so if they're not good, what happens at the top and all this reflection? So anyway, uh, probably a bit of a digression there, but I do think this is why it merits studying. Um, but in the history of philosophy, you kind of go, uh, you get the, um, you know, Greeks, of course, in the Western world, we start with the Greeks, and then we go to the Romans, and then you get a little medieval theology, and then you get a whole hell of a lot of Germans. I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's Greek, Romans, a little medieval theology, and then a bunch of Germans. It's really a remarkable element of uh, philosophical history, and I think it bears thinking about why they were so dominant, just as why the Roman and Greek classics have, have continued to resonate for so long. So uh, this concludes the series on the Germans. Thank you uh, very much for listening, and to those of you who were able to attend the lectures when we were allowed to have uh, lectures, I really appreciate you coming out, and hopefully in the fall... Um, I will be getting uh, another lecture series, which I believe I'm going to title The Mind, A User's Guide. So that's, that's kind of what I've been pondering for my summer research. Um, and, but I'll also be putting up some more short uh, pieces on sort of the thinking pieces and the answering to the great questions that have been coming in. So thank you very much. Hope everyone is, is being well and enjoying the promise of spring.